Our scripture passage today comes from the book of Romans, chapter 12. If you want to look in your uh, pew Bibles, they're found on page 1100, but I am going to be reading from the New American Standard. Um, So if you want to look that up on your iPhones or iPads or whatnot, or you can look up above at the screen here and follow along. Starting in chapter 12, verse 1, the letter to the Romans. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. For through the grace given to me, I say to every man among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allowed allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let each exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning once again. If you weren't here in the beginning, my name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you to Mercer Island Covenant Church. Last week, we began a series that we are calling Embodying the Gospel. We have just finished the series called The Gospel, but the gospel is not just for us individually, but it really speaks to how we are to be together as a community. But more than just a community, but as a body, meaning that we're not just together, but we're supposed to be functioning together. So we're beyond the community. We are a body. Uh, there's a lot in this passage. I was counting how many sermons I myself have preached on uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I stopped counting at 12. And so there's a lot of sermons, and uh, from what I can count, this is some sermon number 13 on this passage that I uh, wrote this week. And so there's a lot to be said in these eight verses. We are going to primarily focus on two ideas uh, this morning. There is a um, art and science to giving. That giving is challenging, and it's not something that's easy to do. It's not brainless. It's not mindless. It's not heartless. And so giving, which is what we're talking about today, is both spiritual, as Paul says, and reasonable, as he says. Okay, so the two points that we're going to sort of work around are two F words, framework that is faith, and function, as in gifts. Okay? First, framework. I want to point out verse 1 again, as I did last week. Verse 1, Paul uses this word, spiritual. Okay, he says, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. This word spiritual is the Greek word that just means logic or reason. Right, And so Paul here is beginning to say, this isn't just a feeling that you have. This isn't just a hard experience. I want you to reason this out. I want you to think about it. Be logical about this. And then in verse 3, you see that little word, for, for through the grace given to me. That word for is a, a word that's also... Uh, an encouragement from Paul that he himself is reasoning. He's trying to show 
causality. He's saying for or because of something that he just finished saying. Right? And then later on, verse 3, he says, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And so again, he's encouraging us to think. And this word think here is the word proneo in the Greek. And it means to have understanding. It's not just uh, logic here, but it's reasoning. And it's wisdom. And it's, it's appealing to sort of our whole self coming to grips with the reality of something. And then finally, he, in verse 3, he says, sound judgment. Here is referring to mental health. And so the whole setup here, all the sort of active commands and the appeal to Paul, the basis of his appeal is for us to think. He spent all of chapter 11 making a case for something. He's saying, I want you to think about this. This is reality. I'm defining reality for you. And then verse 1 begins with, Therefore, I want you to think about something. I want you to reason this out. If A is true, what are the implications for B? And then if B is true, what does it mean for C? Play this out. Think this through. Not just feel Christianity, our faith, isn't just a reaction to an emotion that we feel. It's not just our sort of grasping because we're in a state of need. You know, I think sometimes Christians have uh, deservedly uh, received the reputation, earned the reputation that we don't think, that we don't like to reason. We just believe that our faith is blind and, and blind faith is rewarded. And that's what it means to be a Christian. But here Paul is saying, I want you to think about it. Use your God-given brain. Fine, Paul, think about what? What are we supposed to think about? What's the big deal here? And then in verse 3 again, there's a key phrase here. And this is the uh, phrase that I kind of spin on here. This is what really turned this around for me. Here's this little phrase, measure of faith. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment or mental health, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And I, I read uh, several commentaries and searched the World Wide Web for what this little phrase Means And uh, there are basically two camps of thinkers on this phrase. There is one camp represented by uh, uh, Pastor John Piper, who says here, Paul is referring to a certain proportion of faith. So God is giving different people different amounts of faith, if you will. And then, uh, in my opinion, the better scholar on this verse is uh, Dr. John Stott who wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, and he says it refers to a specific amount or measure, meaning that Paul isn't saying he's giving different amounts of faith to different people, but he's saying he's giving to each person a certain standard by which to measure their gifts. And he goes on to explain that in this context, Paul is setting us up to talk about the fact that God gives gifts to people. Because Paul's been making a case for grace, what he is now saying is, now God, as a way to express his gracious love towards us, he's going to allow us to love on each other, which he begins to talk about in verse 9, which we're not going to get to. The way we are to love each other is through the gifts that he has given to us. But the implication, Stott says, is that if God gave you gifts and he stopped there, it would be dangerous in our hands. And I was thinking about this. What would happen if God just gave me gifts? What if God just gave me the ability to, to do things. 
knowing my own track record as a human being, what would happen to these gifts? Would they actually be a blessing to other people? And I realized that if God had just given me gifts and said, Peter, exercise these gifts, what would have happened is I would have exploited people. I would eventually use these gifts not to bless people, but to put them in my debt. I would scratch their back as a way to get my own back scratched. And every good intention would lead to hurt eventually. And every time I want to uh, engage with another person in some capacity, my gifts would get in the way. It would become a power trip. And it would be power without love in my hands. And what's power without love? It's dangerous. You know, um, this is a silly analogy, but it's kind of vivid for me. We had a couple of days of fog here, didn't we? And uh, every night around, uh, you know, 12, midnight or so, Susie and I, uh, we walk our dog um, about half a mile uh, for the evening. And uh, we carry a flashlight because there's no lights. And it was really fun to walk our dog this week because my flashlight would light up the fog. And it's sort of this high-intensity LED beam. And it looked like a lightsaber. And uh, you got to have a kid in you, right? doesn't matter how old you are. When you are holding this solid metal object and it shoots out this visible beam of light, that feels good. And I began to swing that thing. And before I knew it, I forgot that my wife was there. And I started even making mm-hmm noises. All of a sudden, I was a Jedi. And then I thought, I would kill myself in five minutes if this was a real lightsaber. Because this thing would be able to cut through anything in an instant. And before I knew it, I would bop myself on the head, except it wouldn't be a bop. It would be a lobotomy. I just, decapitation. How dangerous would that be? And so Paul says here, and I, I do believe Stott is right. There are gifts that God has given us. But there is a faith by which we are to measure our gifts. And so what is this measure of faith? And my word for it is framework. That God has given us a framework by which to receive, understand, and utilize our gifts such that these gifts from God can be a gift to the body of Christ. Chapter 11, as we talked about last week, talks about how God has shut all of us up in the same net. There is no one who is able to save themselves by their works alone. But the works by which we are able to experience life are the result of a faith in God's grace. That to be a Christian means to believe that life isn't accomplished just by summing up our works, but it's through God's grace. And this is the framework that measures our gifts. Let me tell you a story to illustrate this point. As I was preparing this, the main story that kept coming into my mind is my immigration experience. Um, I immigrated to the United States with my parents and I have three sisters, but at that time, we only, I only had two sisters. And um, one of them, we left in Korea uh, with her grandparents because we thought uh, she, w- she was too young to sort of handle the immigration experience. And so just my older sister and I and my parents, we came to the United States. My dad came on a student visa. He was a math uh, professor in Korea. And so he um, came over to study computer science. And we thought we had done the right amount of math, and we brought a whole $8,000 with us on August 16th, 1981. And uh, uh, just a couple of months into our life here in the United States, uh, we realized that uh, we were running out of money far quicker than uh, we had realized. And so with a student visa only and unable to acquire the paperwork to work legally, 
Um, and, uh, you know, we are trying to set up home and shop to be able to uh, ha- be family here, but also to bring my other sister over. And so my dad started working illegally uh, as, uh, at, a, at a grocery store. And I remember he would go to school during the day, and then he would work many hours in a, a grocery store. And then um, uh, he would, you know, sleep what he can. And my mom, she took a job at a nail salon, uh, something she had never done before. Uh, I mean, have a job <laughs> outside the home. And uh, she, so she, we were just surviving. And... Um, I remember my dad, when he got uh, laid off from the grocery store, I remember when he came home with meat that he had bought, and uh, he, my mom made uh, soup with it, and I was so excited to eat this meat. And that was a rare thing for me, because I was such a finicky eater. If I saw like, you know, anything that looked uh, like it was alive at some point, you know, like a ligament or a tendon or like a little piece of fat attached to the meat. I just would pick those kind of things out. But that particular time, I remember um, I asked for more meat because I was so happy to see meat on, on the table. And my parents thought I had said, I don't want the meat. And so they got so upset at me, they took away my dinner and they sent me to their room because I didn't have a room. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was still one of the saddest memories of my, of my childhood is not being able to eat that delicious soup with meat in it that my mom had made. I remember our uh, basement apartment. Uh, it was apartment number LG, and it was rat and roach infested in New York City. And uh, I don't know if it was legal, but there it was. And we had two bedrooms. And the kids, we had set up a, a, cur- a curtain system and we were um, sleeping in the living room. And right next to us, we had sectioned off another uh, curtained area. And we rented it out to a, a, a college international student at the time. And then my parents were in one bedroom. And then the other bedroom, we rented it out to these guys that we didn't know. I don't know how my parents found them. And uh, I remember living like that. And then uh, shortly thereafter, we had to shrink our curtains part because my mom started ironing shirts for her dry cleaners at home and she was getting paid a certain amount of cents per every shirt that she ironed. And then that wasn't enough. So I remember my dad, uh, when he got fired from um, uh, the grocery store, he started working as a peddler, selling uh, fake uh, jewelry and uh, sunglasses uh, on the street corners of Manhattan. And I remember there were these uh, officers who would walk around looking for a license to sell, like a peddler license. And my dad obviously didn't have one. Then often he would get his stuff confiscated or he would grab his things and he would run. And I remember this one particular day I was with him. I remember running away from the cops with him, not knowing at all what was happening. And then I remember um, we, uh, we were doing better in life, and my dad bought a dry cleaning store on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And uh, I don't know if uh, dry cleaners still do this, but right behind the counter, there's this spotting station that my dad had set up. Is where he has all these uh, chemicals lined up and a steam gun and a bunch of brushes and things. And uh, he would remove stains from clothes before he, dro- before he would throw it in the uh, dry cleaning machine. And I remember, <laughs> I hope I could get through this, I remember um, working at that dry cleaning store. I worked there um, every day before school, starting in seventh grade, all the way through uh, my college and uh, before and after school. And I remember that spot where my dad stood for 14 hours a day, removing stains from clothes. That spot, though it was tiled, had worn. And it was black and white tiles, but the tiles had just become a dull gray just in that spot where he stood. I remember as a sixth grader uh, getting my first job as a paper boy and then working hard and then earning enough Christmas tips to uh, uh, save up. And I took my family on our first family uh, vacation to Niagara Falls. I rented the car, uh, booked the hotel rooms, paid for gas, paid for food, it was our first vacation. And then that, that Christmas, I bought our family's first Christmas tree. Prior to that, we had um, a milk crate, and I would stick branches in it. 
And that was our Christmas tree. And I share this story with you. And there, there are a billion more stories like this that, um, that live in me. But I, I think about these stories. And this serves not just as an emo, emotional inspiration for me to live life well. But it's logical. It's reasonable. I am fully committed to being my parents' retirement plan and 401k. They don't have one. And it doesn't feel like a burden to me. I gladly send my parents money on a regular basis. I do that because I think about them every day. I, I worry about them. And it's because they gave me life. They brought me here. He suffered the agony of losing his status and became a dry cleaner, became a peddler, became a fugitive, running from cops. And I remember that, not just in my heart, but in my head. This is what I think faith is. Having this very real, almost embodied understanding that we are sinners without hope, that try as, me, try as we might, as gifted as we are, we are unable to save ourselves. We are unable to live life successfully. We are unable to not hurt each other. All of our good intentions truly pave just a road and a way to hell, either here or later. You knowing this and recognizing that when God shuts us all up and says, you are all condemned together so that I can save you all together by my grace through the death of my son, his blood will be shed for you. And that becomes good news to us. And we believe that in the depths of our being. This is the framework by which Paul says, this is how you must understand your gifts. And if you don't understand this, you're going to exploit each other. You're going to put each other in debt, just like you've been trying to put God in debt and telling God he owes you something. He owes you nothing. This is the framework. Think. Be God's will. Offer your whole selves. It only makes sense. And then function. Verse 6, Paul says, we have these gifts that God has given to us. And uh, this isn't just the word gifts, but it's the word charismata in the Greek. It's grace gifts. It's a bit redundant, isn't it? What is a gift if it's not by grace? It's a loan if it's not a gift. I don't think we understand gift giving very well. I think most of us on some level still maintain some string tied to each gift we give or receive. I think because of who we are, we don't understand charismata. We don't understand grace gifts so well. And so I think this is a first for us. And he says, you belong together. You are all members one of the other. And I have given you gifts so that you can bless each other. This is the beauty of blessing. God first said this to Abraham, who is the father of our faith. You have been blessed, not just so you can be a blessed person. Not just so your life can be convenient. Not just so your life can be lived well and you can be happy and comfortable and thank God and rejoice and have hope but so that you can be a blessing. The primary reason God gives you gifts is so that you can be a conduit of that gift. The primary purpose of God's gifts to you is so that it can flow through you. And then God says, the collateral benefit of a gift flowing through you will be greater than than if the gift remained just with you. 
that it is more blessed to give than to receive, that when you realize that you have these gifts, these resources, these advantages and opportunities, all that you think you have, all that you believe is benefit to you and for you, when you begin to measure that gift according to this framework, then you begin to understand that you are supposed to give it. And when you give, that collateral benefit is going to bless you far more than if the gift just remained with you. Without this framework, what happens? We're going to overgive, right? How many of you have overgiven before? When God gave you a faith and a gift to give $100 to the church, and then you were like, you know what? I'm better than that. And you gave $150. And then you find yourself going, huh, are those new shoes Peter's wearing? Did he get a raise? These chairs don't feel as comfortable. Why aren't we buying new chairs? Why are we? I've overgiven. I know what it's like to give in the flesh, as the scriptures say, rather than in faith. That's me working rather than understanding that gift as a grace gift. How many of you have undergiven? I have. And when I undergive, you know what happens? I have a need to hate the thing that I undergave too. Because I need to bring it down a notch to justify my undergiving. You think about giving, you think it's my choice. I'm telling you, it's not your choice. Your human nature isn't that great. You can't handle giving. You can't overgive. You can't undergive. Again, just like last week, damned if you do, damned if you don't. What will you do? We judge. We owe. Love turns to hatred. Gift, gifts turn to debt. Gestures turn into manipulation. Good intentions lead to hurt. And so uh, later on in the verse, in verse 6, he, Paul makes a redundant statement, grace given. Of course, grace is given, but it's a, it's a way of underscoring the fact that this is grace that Paul is now talking about. This is the framework of the gifts. And so he goes on to list some gifts, and he says, if it's prophecy, measure that gift according to the framework. And everything else, serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy, whatever it is, measure it against the framework of God's grace. Can you ever outgive God? Can I ever outgive my parents? I don't believe so. I can't imagine feeling like I have given to my parents too much. It's part of my story. I will honor my parents in this very specific way. I'm grateful for them every single day. I have memories embedded in me. This is my framework. And it informs my framework with God. That he has given me everything. All that I am. All that I have. And all the myriad of things he saved me from. I don't even know. And for that, I owe God my life. And as I give God my life, I receive the blessing. I experience the collateral benefits of that. Now, um, let me read you a verse and let me tell you a second story. First uh, Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26. This is another uh, book of the Bible where Paul is talking about the body of Christ. And he says this, If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Um, I, um, this week was a rather uh, stressful week for me. And there was uh, just a lot of planning and lead up to a decision that was executed this week. And I, just been in, I have been in uh, process and uh, somewhat in turmoil and just trying to understand uh, how this is all playing out. And uh, uh, before I tell this story, let me uh, give this um, disclaimer. You know, one of the 
um, changes that I'm hoping to make in our church culture here as, as a body of believers here is to understand the Sunday service, this experience that we're having right now as a public ministry event and opportunity. This is not a private family affair where we get to just do what our family needs to do. But it is, an, it is a place where we invite the public to come and join us and experience an opportunity to hear about Christ and to hear about God's love. Right? And so that's one of the things that I noticed maybe this church needs to make a shift in as far as Sunday culture goes. That this event doesn't primarily exist for its members, but the members exist to do ministry on this day. And sometimes that ministry is to the members. But I'm, on, I'm very aware that this is supposed to be a ministry uh, and public opportunity. And so I hesitated with telling this story, and I consulted with uh, many people about how and if and all that. But I want to tell this story as best as I can from this uh, situation, uh, from this uh, position here, uh, from the pulpit. But uh, so we had to, um, uh, ex- I had to execute a decision uh, this week, and uh, best of intentions, love in my heart. And seeking wisdom, seeking humility. Uh, But it doesn't matter because uh, I'm human. And so I've come to the conclusion that as circumspectful as I was trying to be, I think I I made mistakes and I poorly executed parts of this decision. And I I hurt people in the process this week. And this was a fascinating and helpful sort of real time experience of the functioning of the body for me. This week. And, uh, you know, Paul says here, as I read in 1 Corinthians, that when one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Now, Paul isn't saying you should suffer with it. He's saying, no, I'm describing to you what actually happens, whether you like it or not. If one member suffers, we all suffer. And if one member is honored, then we're all honored together with it. And if one member is dishonored, then we all feel the dishonor of that. And so what I want to do is I just want to apologize for uh, not, not properly honoring a member of our body. And I want to apologize for uh, poorly executing this decision and hurting people in the process. And so I want to ask for your forgiveness. And I've thought about this. And I, uh, you know, the last person I was talking to about it said to me, Peter, you realize you can only do this if it's true in your heart. And I really, I, I, I feel it's true in my heart, and I'm repenting, and I'm sorry about um, the ripple that went out uh, through the body. And it was amazing to me that uh, so many of you felt it. And it's a body. Like, you can use your body as a, as a metaphor. There was an immune response from the body. And it was so amazing for me to catch a real-time glimpse of that. And so, uh, you know, by last night, I was just marveling at the functioning of the body. And the comment that I made to another uh, group was, you know, I feel like at the end of the day, the immune response is really love. And I really hope if anything uh, happened to me or at the church that required me to be on the receiving end of love and an immune response, I would also be Receiving that as well. Thank you. Um, so this, this idea of these grace gifts that God has given each of us a part to play. And the, the, and the reason God has given us these gifts is so that we can bless each other. And part of that blessing is an immune response. So that was beautiful for me. Now let me move on to the application. Uh, to this sermon. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says this, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Why do staff exist, according to Ephesians chapter 4? We exist, the staff, 
I and the other staff of this church exist not to do ministry for you or on your behalf or just to you. You didn't hire me for you to be ministered to primarily. You hired me. You pay me the big bucks so that I would help you do ministry better to each other. This is what Ephesians 4 is saying. The primary functioning of the staff of a church is so that the laity can exercise their gifts towards each other and for the community in which the body resides. You thought you were off the hook. You thought you wouldn't have to do ministry. And I'm here telling you, Paul is telling us we're supposed to do ministry to each other. And my job isn't to just do all the ministry. I'm not the professional Christian. You are. This is what you are supposed to do. And I'm going to professionally help you do it. Uh, a metaphor that's been helpful for me thinking about this this week is a metaphor of a computer. All right, notice I have a computer here. I am preaching to you uh, from an application, a software application called Microsoft Word. Any Microsoft fans here? In, yes. <laughs> it's running on my Apple computer, but so be it. <clears throat> so I think that the staff are like, uh, okay, sorry, I jumped. So I'm, I'm preaching to you from an application called Microsoft Word. But Microsoft Word isn't running on my computer machine here, but it's running on an operating system that runs the hardware. Right? So there's an operating system, an environment, that's the operating system, in which... The application, Microsoft Word, resides. And this Microsoft Word works in coordination and conjunction with all these other applications. For example, if I wanted to insert a picture into my uh, Microsoft Word document here, it calls upon another application, and that application starts up, and then it displays all these pictures from which I get to choose to insert into my Microsoft Word document. And so what the operating system does is it allows different applications to work together in harmony and coordination. And this is what I think about as the church, that the staff are like the operating system. We help provide the environment in which the applications can run in coordination with each other so that they can do the heavy lifting. The applications do the work. It's the application that I preach from. But the application is built on the operating system. In other words, the operating system is equipping Microsoft Word, the application, to do its job better and in coordination with other applications. All that to say... We are a body of Christ. And I, as the lead pastor of this church, I see my primary function, one of my primary functions is to make sure the operating system is running well. And I want you to know, I have been thinking a lot about this operating system and the ways it's supposed to function. And I want to give you a little sort of a slice, a glimpse into where we're at in terms of staff. So this is a way of introduction, and this isn't normal protocol to share about uh, present and future staff thoughts in real time, but I wanted to bring you in early in the process. And so first we have uh, Julie Steele. Julie Steele, are you in the room? Children's Church? Okay. Uh, she has been the children's ministry pastor and uh, with family ministries and helping out with women's ministries and sort of filling in a lot of cracks. And we've been asking the question, who is Julie really? When you cut her, what does she bleed? <laughs> right? What, what is her instinct? <laughs> what is her ministry instinct? And we realize 
that, like it or not, she really is gifted and uh, instinctually leans towards overseeing and coordination of ministries and staff and management. And some of you who know Julie say, oh my gosh, that's totally true. And so we're thinking about how she might serve our church, possibly as, uh, as an executive pastor of sorts. Okay. Next, we have Chris Campbell, who is not with us today, but he's been serving. Uh, he sort of morphed into the role that he's playing now. Uh, and he's, he's a youth pastor, and he's also uh, our Sunday worship guy. But we've been talking, and we realize he really is somebody who is sensitive to production that he really understands how to produce events, that he really naturally thinks about all the transitions and he cares about the quality of the experience on Sunday a lot, all the way from parking and to all the little pieces that have to come together for this experience here, all the way through to food. And we talked about how to incorporate uh, all the laity into this ministry, talked about how to have ministry teams that are led by ministry leaders and how he's going to oversee all the ministry leaders so that Sunday can be a really smooth and positive and life-giving experience to all that come, especially uh, when and if we go into two services. And so we're thinking about Chris in terms of overseeing Sunday ministry teams and leaders, creative arts, communication, and slowly roping him into general pastoral work, if I can help it, um, and giving him the title maybe Sunday producer. Next we have uh, Dave Komar. Some of you may not know him, but he is our custodial engineer at the church, and uh, he runs a small staff who take care of our building and set up chairs and do all, these, all, these, all this kind of work that goes on behind the scenes. It's literally and metaphorically the plumbing of the church. And uh, we're going to bring him a little bit closer to the mission and the bigger vision and values of the church. So he gets really a sense of the mission of the church. So facilities and property management in collaboration with staff for mission alignment. Okay, next we have Phyllis Knoll. She is our, yes, I made them all stand in my office against the same wall, and I took pictures of them. Uh, this is Phyllis Knoll. She is our bookkeeper, but um, I kind of think about her as the bookkeeper because she keeps the booze away. You know, she makes our church financially sound, safe, and savvy. How do you like that for three S's, huh? Okay, next we have Bud Palmberg. And that's Bud when he was being honored as a hero of the faith for his work uh, in the city of Seattle. And uh, he's our pastor emeritus. And his job description is pretty simple. Pastor extraordinaire, mentor and helper to Peter Sung, the young, well-meaning, new senior pastor at Mercer Island Covenant Church, in, uh, in whose steps, Bud's steps, Peter follows. Okay, uh, next we have Leanne Check, uh, she is our newly hired and newly created position of office manager. And Leanne is here with us today. I won't point out where she is, but uh, if you want to say hi to her after service, she and her family are here. Uh, her husband, Charlie, or Charlie, as she likes to say in Australian accent. And she's going to be uh, the management of the front office oversight over facilities, logistics help, administrative assistance to ministry leaders uh, and pastors. And I'm super excited about her coming on. And she will be starting tomorrow. Next, we have Chad Hammond. Uh, he started an internship with us. He is a part-time student at Fuller Theological Seminary Seattle Extension. He was a connection of our, uh, one of our favorite pastors, uh, Pastor John Peterson, um, who uh, handed the baton to me here in this position, and uh, his real passions lie in evangelism and discipleship and outreach and anything you can think of sort of as bridge building. He's just really keen on how to make that connection with somebody who might not naturally feel connected uh, to the church. And so I'm super excited about investing in his life and seeing his life play out. Uh, a woman walked up to me uh, a month ago when he, she first saw him at the church, and she said, who is that? He's really good-looking. And, um, and I said, I guess I wasn't in the room when you were thinking that. <clears throat> uh, 
And so um, I was trying to compete with him, and I got a new haircut. And I come to church today, and I see Chad, and he got a haircut. And so it's on. Uh, Next, I want to make mention of Christine Nakano. She read scripture for us. She preached a couple of weeks ago. But she is a pastor in transition. And she and I have no idea where she's going to land at, uh, in her next uh, call. But she lives on the island, and I really like her, and she's super gifted. And so we're so, sort of choosing to hang out together, and she's going to just be helpful to us as a pastor with gifts and experiences. Um, and uh, I bless her to go where she's supposed to be, uh, wherever that is. But right now, we're really enjoying her, and we're thankful that she's in our midst. Her heart really lies in... Um, uh, in folding ministries. She's got very strong pastoral and congregational care instincts. She really, she's really passionate about spiritual formation and prayer. There's many of you probably in this room uh, whom she invited over to her house for a meal or coffee or something because that's sort of just her instinct. As she likes to say, Peter, I'm a pure people person. And uh, I said, bless you, I'm not. And so I'm glad that she's hanging out with us. Uh, just a quick uh, a uh, word about Kevin Swanson, the next guy. Uh, he's somebody that uh, I'm in conversation with, and I'm excited about who he is as a pastor. We're in process with him, and we're not sure all that's going to happen, when and how with him yet. But I'm thinking about uh, him as a potential associate pastor to help us with small groups, some administration, and pastoral work, and global engagement. Um, he has quite an impressive resume with world missions, and he's a pilot and a mechanic, and he was a CEO of Christian Missionary Aviation Fellowship. Um, and... Uh, on general associate and pastoral work. So stay, um, sort of we'll keep you in the loop about Kevin. Uh, next we have Brent Strobel. Uh, he's an intern that we're in process with, and we will be, uh, if all goes well, he would be starting with us in June. And check this out. His primary passions are youth and senior visitation. Isn't that so weird? Doesn't he look so young? But here's why. When I interviewed him, he said, Peter, I really think youth listen better to their grandparents than their parents. And so one of my passions and ministry strategies is to connect the youth to the seniors of a church. And one of the main reasons I was thinking about Mercer Island Covenant Church as a place to do my internship is because you guys are intergenerational. I said, buddy, you have no idea what love language you're speaking to me right now. (laughs) And um, he looks really young, right? But relax, it's okay. In person, he looks at least six months older. <laughs> so, um, and he's engaged to a lovely woman named uh, Eva. And uh, they'll be getting married in August. And then last and uh, not least, we have Peter Sung, yours truly, lead pastor. And what do I do? Well, as a pastor, I only work on Sundays. So... <clears throat> <laughs> So that is just a glimpse into the future of the church. And I want you to know we are working hard to create an operating system that would be incredibly productive for the laity to be empowered, to be able to do the ministry and the works for which you have been created, for which you have been gifted, for which you have been saved. And so I want to invite you, consider this your official sort of the State of the Union presentation and invitation to partake in the future of Mercer Island Covenant uh, Church. Let me end with this one more example. Um, There are four basic life stages to a church. The first And very important stage is what's called a family-oriented church. What that means is that we don't really care about the leader that much. We don't care about the staff. We really are here for each other. We are a family, right? And then the church will outgrow that stage 
be founded on that stage, but grow beyond that, and they become what's called a pastor-oriented stage. That's when everybody feels like the pastor, you know, has to do all the ministry. If somebody's sick, the pastor has to go. If somebody prays, the pastor has to pray. If there's a sermon, the pastor has to preach it. Well, where's the pastor? Why aren't we doing ministry? Where's the pastor? And it's all about the pastor. And uh, ironically, this is the favorite stage of most pastors because it feels like it's their birthday every week. And... Um, and so often, when a church is trying to grow past this pastor-oriented stage, the pastor will subconsciously sabotage so that it comes back down to being a pastor-oriented church because they don't know how to function any other way except to do the ministry themselves. But I'm telling you, we have to grow out of this stage to the third stage, which is called a program-oriented church. That means the laity are empowered. And there's multi-staff. And we are now centering not around just the ministry of the pastor, but the programs of the church. And this is when a church really begins to grow, and the community feels like, oh, there's some resources here at the church from which we can benefit. And so the church begins to grow, the programs develop, but we can't stay there either. We have to go beyond that to what's called a resource church, and that means that we are uh, equipping not just our own ministers, but are a resource to other churches and beyond. And that is my hope, that we can be helpful to other churches, to be resor- a resource to them, and also to help our conference and denomination. Okay, so that is our hope, that is our dream, and that is our plan. So I leave with you an ima- uh, to your imagination to be able to imagine the future of this church as a well-oiled well-functioning, well-supported, well-coordinated, fruitful and not just faithful, local body of Christ founded on God's grace. And you are officially invited to partake in this body, gifted and graced. And I ask you today for your time, your treasures, your talents, and also your forgiveness and your grace and your very selves. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for allowing us to be a body, to be a church, and especially as a church planter whose experience is in helping to start churches that never existed before, I understand that we don't have to exist. But thank you that we do. And I feel like you are wanting to breathe new life into our church, and I'm really excited about what our future holds. And I'm thankful today that it doesn't rest on my shoulders, on the shoulders of the staff, but on all our shoulders together. We bear this weight together because you have called us to be a functioning body. And there's a framework out of which we function, and that is your love and grace for us. The life, death, and resurrection of your Son, His Spirit in us. And towards this and for this, and thankful for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.